On this episode of Uncorrelated Minds, Kevin Kalaki has a conversation with Adapar's head of portfolio and market analytics, Dan Gulasovker. Adapar is a leading provider of technology and wealth management solutions for investment advisors and family offices. Dan is an industry veteran who previously worked at Bridgewater Associates. He recently developed the Investment Sentiment Index, a transactions-based index of ultra-high net worth investors. Utilizing Adapar's robust data platform, the Investment Sentiment Index provides purpose-built insights, representing more than 10,000 investment portfolios, each valued at more than $10 million in total assets. So Kevin, take it away. Well, I thought I would start the podcast with the title of the podcast, which is the one question we are always asked by our clients. Rather than wait to give you that answer at the end of the podcast, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you now <laughs> and let you know um, how our guest today is, is actually helps us answer that question even beyond the scope of our own client base. Dan, thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm happy you're here and you're able to join us on the podcast. And please go ahead and just give us a, a rundown on your background and how you ended up as the head of portfolio market analytics for Adapar. That sounds great. Well, Kevin, thanks again for having me on your on your podcast. I'm really excited to be here. It's been kind of an interesting ride in my career. I've, uh, I've essentially had a couple of jobs throughout my entire career. And because of that, I've been able to go really, really deeply into those jobs. Bridgewater Associates, we spent a lot of time learning about how, how markets work, really learning about uh, sort of the connection between the different forces in the, in the marketplace and what drives, what drives prices up and down across bonds, stocks, commodities, and other asset classes. And one of the deepest learnings from that front was in the area of flows, like who's literally buying and selling assets and, and to, in what degree. And that's you know, very much led me to kind of my next job here at, at Adapar, which is head of portfolio analytics and leveraging the data set there to, to really study the flow, the flow of assets. To kind of answer the, the title of the, of the podcast, what, what brought me to, to Adapar was very much the idea that we could really aggregate all of the portfolio transactional data and begin to look at how assets are flowing, particularly amongst high net worth investors. Well, thanks, Dan, for giving us that background on your history, where you've been before and where you are now at Adapar. And I think a lot of the people on this podcast or listeners of the podcast may not know that we, we are an Adapar user. So we are a firm that uses Adapar when we had initially reached out to you and your group to learn more about the investor sentiment index, which is again, taking it a step further when people ask us the question, you know, Hey, Kevin, what are your, what are the other clients doing? We now have a resource with Adapar to say, well, even better than just what our small subset of clients are doing, what is the broader set of clients in this space doing? And really today we're going to learn a little bit more about who is Adapar. I'm just going to give a little background on why I chose Adapar and then I'll let you give some more of the technical mm -hmm. definitions of who is Adapar and how do they manage data and things of that, that nature. Really, thanks again for joining us. When I started the firm, I, I spent about a year interviewing a number of different families, about 39 different families that had 30 million or more in investable assets and really ask them to give me your top four pain points. So what are the four things that your current private bank, wealth manager, broker isn't doing, family office isn't doing that really you would like to have done? And the number one most glaring problem that faced all of these family offices and ultra high net worth families was that they did not have someone or something, a resource that helped them 
have a complete view of their wealth as a family, regardless of where the assets were managed or by whom those assets were managed. In fact, 38 of the 39 families said that was the number one issue. It was, I don't have a way to put this all together and really understand the big picture. And just so we don't have additional questions on the podcast, the other three were number two was I need help with my alternative, my direct and private investments, which is also a part of our relationship with Adapar. The two after that were, for the sake of the show, we'll make it sort of advanced planning. So in other words, we're creating a trust for the family. How does that flow through from the estate plan and tax side? And then the last one is fees. And it wasn't so much that it was, they thought they were paying too, well, let me say that. Most of them did think they were paying too much, but it was more so that they just didn't understand their fees. Adapar is unique in the sense that while it doesn't directly solve for all of these, there is a part of Adapar that helps us address all of those. And that was one of the reasons we really chose Adapar. But again, coming back to the number one issue, and then I'll actually add to that story. There was a friend of mine who, who was part of a large family business consulting group. And I went to visit him and I asked him those four questions and he literally lift, listed them off in the same order. So uh, <laughs> I knew at that point that I had to break off and start a firm that really addressed this. And I knew I needed a partner that was at the top of the stack when it came to, to family offices and at the top of the stack when it came to managing alternative and direct and private investments. And so I, as I always say, I must have regenerative cells in my body because I chopped off my left arm and, and went ahead and got out of par as a startup and very grateful I did because the problems it solves and, and the solutions it creates are, are very very top tier and, and really what the clients were looking for at the end of the day. So give us a little bit uh, a background. What is Adapar and, and how does it benefit these clients and family offices we serve? First off, we're very happy to be your, your technology partner, Kevin. The story that you just basically told really resonates with, with a, lot of, a lot of the clients that, that we serve. For the listeners, Adapar is a wealth management platform that specializes in data aggregation, analytics, and performance reporting. And it really helps provide advisors kind of a clear financial picture to make really timely, informed decisions. The, the way that sort of the story came about was that Joe Lonsdale, who also formerly started Palantir. Now, sort of, now an Austin resident. <laughs> that, that's correct. During the financial crisis, for, for his own needs, he, he really wanted to be able to, to build a quick view into his overall financial picture. And every time he would ask that question, it, would, it was just really hard to get, get the, the answer back. And so I think he realized that even just kind of getting the, the, the basic stuff done right, just showing the entire picture and being able to look at it in any granular way is, is relatively hard. And so he, he basically set up Adapar to, to be able to first do that, to do that first thing, even before being able to do deep analysis and create tools that help you assess the portfolio, really just aggregating in real time the financial picture. The key features of Adapar are exactly that. The, the, the first and foremost is that we aggregate data across a lot of custodians all across the country on a daily basis so that we can create a consolidated financial picture across all of the accounts. It's also very good at modeling alternative assets and for, for high net worth individuals, that is both an important and increasingly important set of asset classes that they want to invest in and being able to have a very detailed view into that is, is, is necessary. The, the way this whole thing works is on a daily basis, all the custodians basically send us files with with portfolio level information that is normalized into a common data model and then fed into the application so that uh, you can see the aggregated picture of, of your investors and clients 
be able to kind of work with them and, and really focus on the thing that is most important to you, which is making sure that their, their goals are, are really met as opposed to kind of working through the mechanics of having to do those very, very, very basic things. I guess the only other salient point is that the reason I think this is a particularly unique data set in, in overall is that it's, it's really a view, it, it, it really is portfolio data of, of the high net class. These are very important, sophisticated investors in the marketplace. Adapar now holds something somewhere between two and a half and three trillion in assets reported across the platform and we work with 600 clients like yourself to to basically help them with with these services. The function of Adapar that we have received has been been phenomenal. In fact, when originally demoed the environment for one of the families that did eventually hire us, it was he said the same thing in a different way. He said, "What I need, you know what I need, Kevin? I need the world's best one pager." I need to just log in one place and, and see it all in, in, in one screen and, and be able to see everything I have all the way down to, you know, kids and grandkid trust and everything else that's in there. And I said, okay. And so when we built out the, the first environment for him, we ended up using it as our template moving forward. So when we do the net worth overview for the families, it, when they initially go in, all they see is the, the family net worth value, some, some key metrics and IR numbers and performance with it and an asset allocation chart. And then they can just click and then they see all of the family members or family units and then they click and then they see all of the accounts and then they click and then they see all of the asset classes and then they click and then they see all of the actual assets and and it goes all the way down in one screen from the entire rolled up net worth of the family office or family all the way down to the individual tax lot. And they can do that in one screen in one portal without going anywhere else and find all of their information. And of course, we've built out since then a number of additional views that go with that as families want want to see different things, charitable views, educational views, views of the trusts, retirement, and things of that nature. But the biggest one I would say was the alternative assets. I spent a considerable amount of time evaluating platforms that w- would be able to scale. Now, I don't have a lot of need for scale because we are we work with a smaller number of, of wealthier families, so it's not a huge scaling issue for us. But we also needed a way uh, to present that data and not just to have the raw data. And Adapar did a, a really wonderful job building out the portal for us uh, on that side. As we go back to the first question, it is throughout this process that you have helped develop the Investor Sentiment Index, which we described briefly at the beginning really the now that we understand the type of data and, and the type of investors that are in here they they tend to be more family office like even if they're not all straight out family offices uh, you know I, someone asked me what's the definition of family office and i said that's a wonderful question <laughs> <laughs> my definition is there actually a door to an office that i can walk through then we'll call them a family office if not <laughs> then they're just a wealthy individual <laughs> but what adapart does allow us to do and I, I want you to talk first here if you could just to the privacy and in, in the data pledge that adapart takes because a lot of times when we talk about moving data or analyzing data on the system with very sensitive and well-known people and they, they really want to understand how it's protected so let's talk about that first and then tell me what is the isi how how is it constructed how does your group build it and then Really, what does it provide? What what are families and advisors like myself getting out of this process? Yeah, all all very good questions. Just as as a first point, I, I guess the as as Adapar started to amass very significant amounts of of portfolio data, one of the realizations that we've had is that we can 
we can really leverage that information to, to benefit our clients and, and the investors. That that information in an in aggregated uh, format can really give insight into how other investors, like the one, like your, like the people that work with you, what are they actually doing with their portfolios on a on a regular basis? That all starts with the concept of um, security and privacy, because although this information is very useful, it, ha- it has to be done in a way that that maintains the anonymity and and privacy of of all of the investors. And so what we do is we have effectively a data pledge and a data privacy policy that we've constructed that really just ensures that all those things happen. The way our data systems work is we effectively, we do, we aggregate and anonymize all of the portfolio information. We go even several steps further by ensuring that no particular investor or groups of investors are overrepresented in in any of the analysis that we produce. We think that that's super important because at the end of the day, our relationship with our clients are just are just so, you know paramount, as are yours with with the investors that you work with. We take that as a first line responsibility, and then everything else kind of falls falls out of that. That's why we've constructed this pledge and take that as as the first step. From there, then the question becomes sort of what what kind of analytics is going to be really really interesting for you and and for for the investors that you work with. Where we, we ended up starting is with this concept of sentiment, investor sentiment. And the reason why we started there is because investor sentiment is one of those ideas that is super intuitive and super easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, extraordinarily hard to measure. Yes. Right? So we have, have this kind of interesting, interesting problem. Investor sentiment is this concept that there are, there are periods of time where investors feel like they can take on more risk and will move into either add more risk to their portfolio by moving out of cash into risky assets or move from low risk assets into higher risk assets. And there are periods of time when investors are kind of weary of risk. And so they're reducing the overall risk in, in their portfolio. And that's what kind of a sentiment gauge is, is really about. As we kind of started our research and looking into how sentiment gauges work, what we realized is that we we actually you know have a competitive advantage in, in this space. And part of what we learned was if you go out into the marketplace, there's really two types of um, sentiment types of measures. One type of sentiment measure would, is more survey based. So if you look at like the UBS sentiment survey, Camden, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Any one of those, they are basically, they're going out to, to investors and asking them questions like, what are you going to do in the next, next month? Or what are you going to do over the next three months? Yeah. The challenge with that, as, as you can kind of imagine, is people don't always do what they say they're going to do. Exactly. Think about sort of like political polling and how good that's been at predicting <laughs> sort of outcomes. You begin to realize, well, yeah, there's, there's, there's probably some flaws in, in asking people what, what they're planning to do. The other approach is more of a kind of a market data type of type of approach. And the, the classic example would be something like looking at, 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 sorry, at equity flows. And so you can look at equity flows reports and, and try to get a gauge as to, you know, are people buying equities or selling equities? Yeah, I often think about the put call ratio as well. Who's actually yeah. buying puts and buying calls and selling them? Absolutely. So any of the volatility type of measures, you can look at, at option pricing. There's all sorts of gauges. When you're you know, specifically sort of in the volatility markets, you can look at just pure volatility and whether that's that's if volatility is rising. Maybe that's an indication of, of people getting worried about risk and, and vice versa. 
they also come with their own problems. And the, the major problem with those is that they're effectively giving you a measure that's kind of looking at the entire marketplace, every, all the participants in the marketplace. And so you have the hedge funds and you have your institutional money managers, you have your retail, you have your higher net worth investors, everybody's kind of aggregated, aggregated together. And that's kind of a problem, especially if what your, your real question is, I want to know what the other families are doing who are like me. That's what yeah. I want to know. I don't, I don't want to know what the hedge funds are doing. I want to know what family offices are doing. That's the problem of the more of the market-based measures. Or the other kind of problem is that you can have individual players have an outsized kind of impact on the overall market. If you have a hedge fund who takes on a very large position or, or takes off a very large position, you can see large moves in the market and that can be distorted and it's very difficult to make sense of it. So people use a lot of statistics and other things, but that's still very hard to kind of read, read through the, the tea leaves. One of the reasons that I was really attracted to the index and, and thought that we would be able to implement it somehow usefully in, in the practice for our clients is that, as I've always told my partners here, is we invest for people. We invest for humans who, who have emotions. In fact, what connected us kind of off in our own little world was the fact that we are a risk parity shop. And, and for those who know Bridgewater, Ray Dalio is the, the kind of father of this, really brought this to notoriety through the all-weather fund. We really focus on risk for our clients, and we understand that clients, no matter how many questions we ask them ahead of time, that they will make changes when portfolios start going down. And so we create a, a portfolio structure that really balances those risks. I won't go into that today. If you want to touch on previous podcasts, we cover that in, in depth. But really, this index in and of itself helps us evaluate the longer term equity focus bucket for our families, the ones where they they can afford to be risk on risk off, not to use a, an, a hackneyed term, but <laughs> they're looking at things like, hey, you know, I want to get out. And it's like, okay, well, don't get out in the core portfolio because we know what the timing of that, the cash flows in there look, look like and where they need to be structured for you. But, you know, if it's a longer term asset, 15 years plus down the road in terms of a time horizon, and then they're really interested in this. And, and not to say that they they market time, but to say that they uh, market sway. So they don't have to be in the markets. They like to be in the markets at that level. When things are going well, they like to lean into it and things are poorly, they like to lean out of it. And this was a way to actually use data. What What are actual other human beings doing with their capital? Again, not institutional capital who, who are investing on a perpetual time horizon, that there's a really easy answer for that. But when you're dealing with not just the family, but the different members within the family, they even act differently uh, amongst themselves. And we have to have tools. And more so, it's just, I think for us at the end of the day, what the ISI does is it just gives one more level of comfort to the families that we have our fingers on the pulse. All very good points. I think what we're, you know, ultimately what we're striving to do is really create that that additional data point. We have, you have all of the traditional kind of measures, and and there's a lot of reports and other third party research that you can tap into, and we really are striving to give that one additional data point that helps kind of helps you kind of triangulate and helps have that quality conversation with with the investors that you work with. And by construction, what, what we've tried to do with the investor sentiment index is make it oriented around the investor as opposed to oriented around the, mm -hmm. the dollars, right? The investor sentiment index really is basically a very simple poll of who's adding equity risk 
in their portfolio minus sort of the percentage of portfolios that are subtracting equity risk in their portfolio. And it's very simple like that. So it's very much oriented doing a, a kind of taking a, a dem, almost a democratic poll of all of the investors and seeing what they're doing in aggregate. And again, all we're really doing is doing this simple calculation of the percentage of portfolios that are buying equities minus the percentage of portfolios that are subtracting equity risk. Because of that, you're kind of getting this very equally weighted, portfolio-weighted view as opposed to a dollar, dollar-weighted view. And so you can kind of get some, you can feel comfortable that you're actually getting a, a good view across all, all of this investor base. And the other thing that, that, that we've kind of really focused in on is just making sure that we're looking at fairly high net worth individuals. We, we set the cutoff at $10 million. That, that was a little bit arbitrary. You can, you can people define high net worth in, in, in different ways. But we, what we try to do is basically say, let's, let's look at fairly large portfolios of which there's more than 10,000. So that's 10,000 data points that we aggregate in, into this index. The index overall, it kind of gives you an overall number, which is, is it overall adding equity risk, but and overall subtracting or overall subtracting equity risk. We've taken other steps to go a little bit more granular than that. So we, we're also doing analysis at the sector level, as well as the single stock level, so that you can begin to look deeper ways into the portfolio and start to have that quality conversation of like, well, you're interested to do maybe make this move in your portfolio. Well, let me share with you what what others like you are doing, and we can at least have a conversation about to a degree, do we think this is a good idea or not a good idea, right? Yeah, and I, I would say too, that, that additional level, really at the sector level, as someone who follows the index, and, and every time it's released, I, I read it in its entirety and see what the input and output is from your group, is that it just proves the fact that you really cannot time the markets. What What is these families are buying one month from a sector is very different from what they're buying the next. And then they're back on the next month after that. And so it's, it's really all over the place and how it moves. There's some, some broader thematics to what's happening on how people are investing long-term. But for those who want to try to time it on a, on a monthly basis, you can just look at the output and say to yourself that that has to be a fool's errand unless you have some sort of inside knowledge, which we know is illegal. But, you know, I, I was really fascinated to hear from you about the kind of March March and April of 2020 data points. You know, it, it's I always laugh, and you know, through the bulk of my career, we always talked about the financial crisis, you know, what happened in 08. And now we're actually having conversations, well, what happened in March of 2020? And how did you yeah. guys do then? Like, what, what was going on in the markets? I know that that, along with the meme stock craze that is going on right now, there's a couple of interesting data points that have popped out with your team, and we'd love to hear about those. Interestingly enough for, for me, it's I remember very clearly exactly what I was during the financial crisis and during March and April of last year. It was like it was so clear in my head in terms of in terms of what we were where we were and what we were working on at the time. So that, yeah, that totally resonates. Uh, I guess what the main learning that that we have through this work in the investor sentiment index is that investors in general are relatively contrarian in nature and they're rel relatively you can tell that they're relatively sophisticated investors who are not just going up and down with the market they're not they're doing something a lot more complicated than that and you can kind of see that in in a number of these data points like the example that you gave is that in in march of last year if you recall there is as the epidemic was just kind of getting going and as information was coming out we ended up going through a number of successive like the market sold off quite a bit in three successive three three successive times during the month of month of march and what was very interesting about that was that for each of those 
sell-offs, the investor sentiment actually turned very bullish during each successive sell-off. So in other words, the investors were, were seeing these as successive buying opportunities, completely in the opposite direction of, of the aggregate market. Whoever was doing all, all of the selling, it wasn't these sets of investors. These were This was clearly patient capital looking for opportunities to, to improve returns. Incidentally, this also happened in the month of May of this month. We had that, that short sell-off that ultimately recovered back in the month of May. But this was also one of those examples where the, the investors represented in the index took that as a buying opportunity, even though more broadly, they've been bearish, the, the market over the recent timeframe. Very cool. Well, I know also the ISI, the, the Investor Sentiment Index, is the tip of the iceberg. And there are some additional things that you are working on within Adapar. I'm not sure what you can share with us today and, and what is still needs to be kept <laughs> under the cloak or... or under the vest, but you know, please let us know what what other types of benchmarking or cert, you know, what other data is coming out of this from your families that is really a being sought after from you by your families, and then also really how how are you planning to use that moving forward? Without going into sort of like the, the specific deliverables and and when they're all coming out, I can talk a little bit thematically about what we're hearing is interesting and and the kinds of things that that we're working on. I think it starts with basically the expansion of just sort of the transaction flows based research where we've used the ISI to really hone in on equities. I think that the next area is really kind of rounding that out with all of the other asset classes and getting a holistic view into where assets are flowing. In my view, I think the most interesting piece of that, and also we've heard this um, from, from many people, is particularly on the private asset side, both in terms of, of funds and where new commitments are going, but as well as d- direct private company purchases and sales of, of, of shares in, in, in private companies, you know, in direct venture effectively, where, where that kind of money is moving. A lot of that, a lot of our research is going to be focused in, in around that. There's obviously some, some significant challenges that have to be overcome in order to do that, yeah. particularly on the private asset side, because in order to, to really figure that out, you have to do a lot of data quality work upfront. And we're, we're certainly as a company, you know, dedicated to doing that. But over time, that's, that's something that we really feel we, we can add value to you and, and have a real competitive advantage because I don't think there's anything like it in the marketplace at all. I think the other area that, that we're interested in is kind of more of the, more of the classic sort of benchmarking type of work where looking at asset allocation and performance and kind of creating asset allocation benchmarks, performance benchmarks, being able to compare and contrast family offices and, and large portfolios and how, how they're allocated in, in different ways. We think that that's just a, kind of an important data set to have and something that, that is worth looking at on a, on a regular basis. And then finally, recently, ESG and impact have been mm-hmm. something a lot, of, a lot of our clients have been talking about and asking us about. And we've started to think about how we could make an impact in, in this area. And again, kind of going back to the title of, of this podcast, I think one of, the, one of the areas that we can help with the most is really helping clients see what, what ESG-oriented portfolios, what, how, how they're structured and what's, what's inside of them. And the reason why it's useful is because we're all still relatively new to, new to, to ESG. It's something we're all learning about. We're all just beginning to incorporate some of those concepts into, into the way we put together portfolios. 
And it's just useful to be able to see what sort of best-in-class portfolios are beginning to do with, with, their, with their portfolios from an ESG standpoint. Those are the kind of three areas. The ESG, we, we kind of stare at it right now ourselves and say the standards of evaluation are still kind of like the Wild West here. There's people making up their own rules and grid of how they evaluate things from an ESG standpoint, and, and some are laughable and some are really well thought out. We're really interested to see what Adabar comes up with in this area on that ESG front. And I think also on the benchmarking from that side is that I've been asked that question by a number of families and family offices here is the one question I received about a year and a half ago now, but was, hey, what does the average family office have in private real estate? It's mm -hmm. a really good question. And so you can dig it up in some surveys, but again, they're survey related. And some people may say, oh yeah, we've got half of our portfolio in it. And in reality, they have about 17% because they, they are a real estate family and they want to be known as a real estate family, but they were smartly diversified from, from that standpoint. And they, it may not be the wrong answer. They just may not be looking at their assets in the entirety to give that survey answer. So you do have to take those with a grain of salt. Well, last question, Dan, we'll wrap up and let you go today. I enjoy that. Some sunshine there in New York City. We know that the, for us, the, the one question our clients always ask us is, what are your other clients doing? And my question is, what is the most common question you were asked by your clients at Adapar? Oh, my goodness. So <laughs> I think I'm asked exactly the same question. So we yeah. are all back to the, to the very <laughs> beginning. But absolutely, like that, it, it is the most asked question that, that I get from, from an analytics perspective. And clients are like genuinely interested in, in what others are doing. And that tends to be even more true when you're from the from the private asset perspective like that there's some data it's not great data but there's some data that can tell you a little bit more about sort of the, the, the public assets about equities and bonds and what's going on there and you can build some some form of a picture but on on the private asset side it's really still in the very early stages of forming into kind of a robust industry and so the opportunity there is is very really tremendous in helping clients get more informed through insightful analytics on how other investors like themselves are kind of working in, in, in private asset space. Gotcha. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. We are, we're honored to be partnered with Adapar on our technology side with their high levels of integrity, especially with client data and client privacy. That's a, a paramount to what we do in working with our families. And we really feel that even with this extraction of data that it's you've really protected all of that for us and our clients and give, given valuable insights through your team and the work you do. Keep it up. I'm excited to see, especially what the private asset benchmarking looks like, hopefully here in the next few months. Sounds great, Kevin. Thanks for having us. And again, we're delighted to be your technology partner and hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Dan. Kevin Kalaki and Dan Gulasavkar, thank you for an insightful discussion of Adapar and especially its Investment Sentiment Index. You can contact Kevin Kalaki at info at com. Subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episode, and of course, share and comment. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.cenaceracapital.com. Cenacera Capital LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cenacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. 
The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of nor liability for decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. Generally, among asset classes, stocks are more volatile than bonds or short-term instruments. Government bonds and corporate bonds have more moderate short-term price fluctuations than stocks, but provide lower potential long-term returns. U.S. Treasury bills maintain a stable value if held to maturity, but returns are generally only slightly above the inflation rate.